One day, men will look back and say, I gave birth to the 20th century. Hello and welcome to the History Obscura podcast. We are well and truly into what they're calling 2022, and it's made me think of some of the stories I've recounted over these last two years. As I'm starting my third season of the podcast, I thought it would be fun to take a look back at some of the stories I shared in the first two seasons. Especially because there's always more to the story than we can see at first, and usually more going on in every little piece of history than we'll ever quite understand. To begin with, this week we're diving headfirst back into the bloody, messy, quite awful story of Jack the Ripper. Once upon a time, if you don't already recall, my first episode on London's most famous serial murderer considered the involvement of one Charles Cross. According to original police files, Charles Cross was the first witness on the scene where Polly Nichols lay dying, her throat cut and a large puddle of blood gathering underneath her body. Polly Nichols was the Ripper's first victim, and Cross encountered her at about 3.40 a.m. on August 31st of the year 1888. She'd been attacked near the gated horse stable entrance on Bucks Row in Whitechapel. Let me go back a little bit and refresh your memory about this story. Born in London's East End, Charles Cross, also called Charles Lechmere, moved many times as a child. By the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, he was 39 years old, was married, and had fathered 12 children. He always lived with or near his mother, even throughout his adulthood. However, two months before the Ripper killings began, Lechmere moved out of his mother's house, leaving his eldest daughter in her care. He took up another residence by himself in Doveton Street. Cross's work as a meat delivery driver was located in Broad Street which meant that after the move, his route to work in the early hours of the morning took him directly through Whitechapel from about 3.30 a.m. Monday to Friday. Delivering meat, Lechmere would have looked completely normal in an apron covered in blood. In fact, the Broad Street Station had a space for workers such as him to clean themselves up between deliveries and after work. Given that the streets of the Bucks Row murder scene are exactly the same now as they were then, Christer Holmgren, a Swedish journalist, and criminologist Gareth Norris walked the route from Lechmere's home in Doveton Street to the location of Nichols' body and found a nine-minute discrepancy in the first witness's story. Charles Lechmere would most likely have had several minutes alone with Polly before Robert Paul spotted him standing over her body. Furthermore, though she's not considered one of the canonical five victims attributed to Jack the Ripper, one Martha Tabram was also murdered just a few weeks before Polly Nichols. 
Tabram's body was first discovered around 3.30 a.m. on August 7th, this time by carman George Crow. Crow was returning home from work, and in the dark, he assumed Tabram had passed out from drinking. The woman remained there until about 5 a.m., when another resident of the building saw her and in the early light could tell that she had been the victim of a serious assault. Martha Tabram had been stabbed 39 times, dying in George Yard at around the very same time that Charles Lechmere would have been passing nearby on his way to work. Cross, or Lechmere, made a fascinating and convincing suspect in the murder of Polly Nichols and the four other women assumed to be victims of the same killer. However, police had little hard evidence to actually convict anyone of any of the murders. The next victim, attributed to Jack the Ripper, was Annie Chapman, who died in Hanbury Street at about 5.30 in the morning of September 8th. Albert Kadosh, who lived at 27 Hanbury Street, told investigators that when he awoke early to go to the lavatory, he heard a woman in the yard yell, No! followed by what sounded like a body falling against the fence. Soon afterwards, Annie was found dead by delivery carter John Davis. Her throat had been cut in a similar way to Polly Nichols, and her abdomen ripped entirely open and her innards rearranged. Her womb was missing. In the early hours of September 30th, near midnight, came the double murder. This time, victim Elizabeth Stride was discovered south of the Whitechapel Road, near the very houses in which Lechmere had spent much of his childhood. Indeed, his mother and eldest daughter lived in that very neighborhood. Stride's murder is believed to have been cut short, as she was only cut once along her throat. A mere 40 minutes later, in nearby Mitre Square, the body of Catherine Eddowes was discovered. This time, the killer had enough time to remove her womb and one kidney. On October 16th, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, one George Lusk, received a three-inch square cardboard box in the mail. He opened it to find a human kidney preserved in wine, along with a letter that looked as if it may have been written in blood. That letter read as follows. From Hell Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out, if you only wait a little while longer. Signed, Catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. The killer's true identity has, as you no doubt do remember, remained a mystery. Many theories have been posited about what kind of human monster committed those long-ago crimes. Some cold case crime researchers have even believed that perhaps Jack the Ripper had emigrated from the United States of America, or that he escaped to the United States following the death of his last victim, Catherine Eddowes. 
Another lead that ultimately fizzled out was the name Kosminski, written in the original police records as a suspect. No first name was given, but the records describe Kosminski as a Polish Jew living in an insane asylum. Now, friends, there is an unexpected twist to this story. In 2007, a letter arrived to researchers that offered an opportunity to shed light on the 118-year-old unsolved case. It read, To whom it may concern, I would confirm that I, David Melville Hayes, am the great-great-nephew of Acting Sergeant Amos Simpson, who became the owner of the said Catherine Eddowes shawl after it was taken from her body. The shawl was then given to my great-grandmother, who was Mary Simpson, who died about 1927. The ownership of the shawl then passed to my great-grandmother Eliza Mary Smith, 1875 to 1966. On her death, the shawl was left to my mother Eliza Elise, later Hayes, 1902-1997. This shawl was given to me at the time my mother went to live in Australia. Full information on this background is available on my family tree, which I will make available to these details. Covers approximately 17 pages of foolscap. For further information, I would suggest contacting Andrew Parler, who has much information on the Metropolitan Police records. I am yours faithfully, David Melville Hayes. In 1888, Acting Sergeant Amos Simpson originally recovered the shawl from the scene of one of the murders, and more recently, it was stored in the Metropolitan Police Crime Museum, also known as the Black Museum. The location and movements of the shawl are recorded in the provenance letter. At the time of the crimes, blood was not considered hazardous due to the extremely limited medical knowledge compared to today. Hence, in Victorian times, recovery of clothing from scenes of violent crimes was not unusual. According to the records, the rest of the possessions belonging to Eddowes were destroyed. Because forensic analysis methods in 1888 were very limited, there was no justification to preserve items belonging to the victim. At the time of this murder, fingerprinting and photography were in very early stages, and DNA had yet to be discovered. The remains of the shawl, apparently taken from the body of Catherine Eddowes and kept by Sergeant Amos Simpson and his family, were stained by what appear to have been bodily fluids. Researchers hoped the stains may consist of the unfortunate Catherine Eddowes' blood, and also, perhaps the dastardly semen of her attacker. Doctors Jari Luhelainen and David Miller released a paper on their findings in 2019 entitled Forensic Investigation of a Shawl Linked to the Jack the Ripper Murders. The stains on the garment consisted of various spatter-type stains considered to be blood, and which turned out to be blood. There was also the potential imprint of internal organs, as well as stains that followed the behavior of semen stains under reflective UV light. 
The doctors appealed to relatives of the victim, as well as relatives of suspects in the murders, for DNA samples. The samples were processed and compared to DNA pulled from the stains of the shawl. During the studies, doctors discovered that the blue indigo dye in the floral parts of the silk shawl was water-soluble and thus quite expensive for its time. A woman given to long and hard work hours and few luxuries, including delicate and ornate clothing, was unlikely to have used this as an everyday outer garment. The shawl was certainly worn by the victim, DNA confirmed, so then it must have come from the man she was with at the time of her death, Jack the Ripper. As for the DNA of the second set of results on the cloth, they were in full accordance with one of the very few witness statements considered reliable. That is, they pointed to a male with brown eyes and brown hair. One whose descendants are named Kosminski. Kosminski, just like the name written in the 19th century memorandum of police investigator Sir Melville McNaughton. More precisely, one Aaron Kosminski, 23-year-old Polish barber in the Whitechapel district in 1888, who spent time in multiple insane asylums after threatening family members with a knife. The description of Aaron Kosminski's symptoms in the case notes indicates that he had paranoid schizophrenia. McNaughton's notes also say that Kosminski indulged in solitary vices, and in his memoirs, he wrote of the suspect's unmentionable vices, both of which may match the claim in the case notes that Aaron Kosminski committed self-abuse. Kosminski died in 1919 in a London mental hospital at the age of 53. He lost his life to gangrene of the leg. It's been another convincing Jack the Ripper tale, hasn't it? Tell you what, I'll bet you a cup of tea that by the start of Season 4, there will be another fresh spin on things. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful new year. Good night. (laughs) 